people. And so that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm here. And I want to give a message that's going to kind of help the church with a foundation to move forward. Now, that's my goal tonight. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 11. These are short verses for the most part, so we're going to go all the way through verse 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. And by the way, one of the purposes of Paul writing this, one of his early books, was to reestablish the foundation he laid in that church. So he's reminding them about a foundation of that church. Verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. The structure of the church influences its perseverance and its growth and its future. So to have the right structure, the right foundation, is crucial if the church is going to be successful. As a pastor, you talk to a lot of pastors, you get to know a lot of people in a lot of churches. And there are some churches, they have different structure to the church. You know, there are churches that the deacons run the church. There are some churches where there's a person that has a lot of money or been there a long time, very influential, and the structure is determined by the, the, an individual within that church. Sometimes there, it's a bit chaotic. No one knows who's doing what, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Everybody does their own thing. So the structure of the church is very important. So relationships with people is important. Everybody's a human being. Everybody's a soul that God has created and allowed to be here on this earth. So we have to recognize the importance of every individual and every person. But sometimes we fail to realize God has a plan for how we respond to each other within the context of a church. Do we really understand what is our role? What is our place? What is the right response? What is our right relationship with one another? We are all to be subject unto the Lord, who is our chief shepherd, and he is the cornerstone of our faith. So it all begins by submission. We yield. We surrender. Lord, thy will be done. What you want is what I want. That's where it all begins. All these relationships develop in such a way that if we are yielded to God, we edify one another. Now, if we were honest, 
Uh, if, if none of us were saved, probably very few of us would be friends with one another. We, we, it's a strange lot that God brings together. Various different backgrounds, and some from a great Christian home, some from a rough background. And, you know, all different walks of life, and yet, you meet someone who's a believer, and you light up. Oh, they're a Christian. You meet someone at work, and they're a Christian. You, oh, there's something unique. There's, there's someone who's a friend, and you know they're a friend. You could literally go to another country and meet Christian people that you couldn't even speak their language and still feel an affinity to them. My daughter's in Japan. I've been to about 30 different countries, and I only speak English and not real good at English. But uh, you can see it in people's eyes. You meet people that some are in the barrios and very poor area. Some are in Asian countries, some in Latin American countries. And wherever you go and you find a believer, we have a connection. And God's plan is for us to help one another, refine one another, and build up one another. Now, his plan is not for us to tear down one another. His plan is not to discourage and disparage one another, but is to respect each person for who they are, where they came from, what their talents are, so that the body is brought together as a powerful unit. God has a plan of structure for the church. As we read through these passages, here are some of the things that I see in, in relation to one another. First of all, there's a relationship of the people to the pastor. It's a very unique thing. It says in verse 12, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So there is a role that a pastor plays that is a position. It's not just the man, but it's also the position. Because he is a pastor, he deserves double honor. Because he is a pastor, he should be esteemed very highly. When I first came to Connecticut, there was a connection that I had made uh, with a man who was going to a, a, another church and we stayed in their home, actually, when we moved out here for three or four days till we got a place to rent. But the first time I met him, he took us to his home. We walked in, and the first thing he said to me is, look, here is a picture of my pastor and his wife. Now, that was startling to me. I thought for sure he's going to point out, these are my children, this is my family. But he pointed to a picture of his pastor and his wife, and it just struck me as odd. But I want to tell you something. Today, all of his children are serving the Lord. One of his grandchildren married one of my daughters, and he is a pastor in Virginia. All of his children went out to serve God, to preach. One's a Christian businessman that gives away a lot of money to help churches as a soul winner. He had an understanding of the, re, the role of respect for the position of a pastor. Now, we don't rate the pastor. We didn't give you cards, you know, like 1 to 10. The, the, the preacher is preaching along. He said, I give him a 7. You know, I give him a 6. And, you know, that was a 10. That was a good, good point there. We, we don't do that. We say, this is God's man. This is God's calling. And he is our pastor. We love him. 
and whatever happens in his life, we support him. There is a, a role that people have toward the pastor and to respect them. So it says you need to know the pastor, know them that uh, labor among you. So do you know his needs? Do you pray for him? Do you pray for his family? You need to know how you can help him. You need to know what you can do to support him and be a blessing. And when parents support the pastor, it influences their children. When parents criticize a pastor, that also influences their children. So you can know the pastor, know his needs, and understand what they are. And it says to esteem him highly for the ministry's sake or for the sake of the ministry. So holding him up, a pastor is not perfect. I have three pastor friends in the past committed suicide. I know of pastors that have failed in the ministry morally. I understand the temptations and the challenges that a pastor has to have. But we have to recognize their role and pray for them and support them and get behind them. We don't condone any sin by anybody, but realize the role that they play. Esteem them highly. Hold them up highly. It's no one's job to go around and pop the preacher's balloon and keep him humble. That's not your role. God will do that. You don't have to worry about that. It is your role to build him up and esteem him highly for the work's sake. And you have to be willing to receive instruction from the preacher. Notoriously, there have been people who've come to me for advice And I tell them what they need to do, and they disregard the advice I give them. And I thought, why did you come to me? Why did you ask? You already determined what you're going to do. Why bother coming to me? So I got to the point. It's like, now, wait a minute. You want to know my advice. Are you going to take it once I give it to you? Are you going to listen to what I have to say? And they continue to make bad decisions and do the wrong thing. You would do well to follow the advice of a pastor. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not going to follow advice that goes against God from anybody. But you have to stand behind the pastor and support him and listen and receive instruction from him. Choose to be an encourager and even in public speak highly of your pastor and learn to love your pastor. We had a man that was uh, just a wonderful Christian man. He was from Lebanon originally. Uh, His name is Dr. Aorkin. So he, every Monday morning, I'd get a phone call. I'd leave a message on my phone. And every Monday, it was the same message. He'd say, Pastor, the message was outstanding. Thank you so much. That was such a help to me. Every Monday, same message. Pastor, this sermon, I don't think every sermon was outstanding myself. But yet he called to be an encourager. There are people that are note writers. There are people that text. That One guy's become a nuisance. He keeps texting me. All the stuff, praying for you, pastor. It's like, you know, I understand that, but I've got a lot of text I've got to read. But, you know, that's the the role that people play, to be an encourager and a helper to the pastor. But secondly, there is a role of the pastor to the people. So the pastor must be a laborer. He said, those that labor among you. Pastor is a worker, a laborer. Now, there's labor in studying, 
teaching, witnessing, training people. There's labor and prayer. There's physical labor, fixing and repairing. And man, there, there are things that I've done and I look in the past and I think, what was I thinking? Why did I do all that work? I mean, and when you add physical labor with emotional and spiritual labor, it's very taxing. But a pastor ought not to think this job is 40 hours a week. Now I'm done. It's not. It's 24-7. You, you have to work at it. You have to be a laborer. And it's hard work. And it may not all be uh, blood, sweat, and tears. You may not have calluses on your hands, but there are calluses there. A pastor's role is to be a laborer. Now, you know and I know that this pastor is a, a hard worker. We, I think everybody knows that. There are some that are not. But most of the people I know, they, they labor. Uh, Tom Michael grew up on a dairy farm. He knew how to work. He had those milkering hands. I mean, you know, he had strong hands. He, he knew what it was twice a day. You don't go on vacation. Most preachers I know, they give hand-me-down clothes to their children. They, they get by just above the poverty level. And they labor without complaint and worry. They're there for the ministry. So there is an effort constantly in the heart of a man of God that says, I'm going to work at building this church. There's no way around it. It doesn't just come automatically. It's hard work. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes planning. It is hard work. The pastor must be a man of prayer, praying for people, encouraging people, trying to help people in time of need. Also, he must be a leader. That's the role of the pastor. He must command the respect of his followers. If you don't have followers, you're not a leader. You're not leading anybody. You have to gain the respect of people where people say, this is what the pastor did for me. And in some cases, you have to continually prove yourself as a pastor because there are new people that come. They don't know the sacrifice you made 10 years ago. The people who are here for a while know, but they don't know that. And you're constantly proving yourself that you're a leader and gain their respect. And you're to train other leaders. Someone said to me, you can be a leader of followers or you can be a leader of leaders. And there are some people are afraid of anybody that has leadership. And they feel threatened and insecure. So they just want to have people followers. Look, I'm the preacher. If you don't like it, lump it. You can walk out. But if you're a leader of leaders, you find out their people have good ideas. I used to be the moderator for all of our business meetings, and I'd give the financial report. And I told Brother Chapman about this yesterday. Uh, it, it made the preacher kind of vulnerable. It's like, you're the pastor. What do you know about finances? You know, that's kind of how you feel. And people ask you all these questions. So we have a man who's a, he was a CFO of a large company and accountant. And so he started presenting the budget. He used language people were not familiar with. They didn't dare ask a question. It was like, what did he say? Honey, do you understand that? I don't know what he's talking about. They didn't ask any more questions. He, they realized that they didn't know everything. But I realized he knew more than I knew. And there are people that know more than you know. Everybody knows something you don't know, hence you have to keep working and, and seeking so that you learn from them. And a lot of things I've learned, I just stole from other people. And I said, hey, they did it, work for them. I'll do the same thing. So we are to be 
a, a leader of people. And that makes you accountable. A pastor is accountable to the church for his leadership. And there are going to be times where everybody may not be 100% behind something. I was at a church, the very first review that I did, I was at this church, and there was a gentleman who was about 92 years old. He played the piano barely, not like you were playing. He struggled along. And he was a giver in the church. Not, not that he had a lot of money, but he was probably the biggest giver. And the stable in the church, and the pastor was afraid to implement and do things because he didn't want to offend that man. And they had all these changes that they needed to make, and he didn't want to offend that man. Sometimes as a leader, you step out and you become vulnerable. And somebody's going to criticize you. Somebody's not going to like it. You have to be careful in leading people. You don't want to lead them astray. But sometimes everybody's not on board. But you have to realize this is what God wants to do. And you try to get everybody behind you, explain why. And then if somebody still isn't on board, sometimes you just, hey, this is what God's led us to do. Somebody may not like it. Somebody may think they know better. You know, sometimes there's somebody in the church that they want to be the one to run the church and make all the decisions. That's happened to us in the past. But you can't let that direct the church. The pastor has to be the leader. He's the one with the vision. He says, here's where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's what we can do. And we work together. So the pastor must be a leader. That's his role. Sometimes people will come in and they maybe they don't like the preaching. They say, you are preaching at me. You came and sat down while I'm preaching. That's what I do. I preach. And I was preaching at you and everybody. That's right. That's what you do. What do you expect? I mean, don't come then. If, they, if you don't want to be preaching at you, that, I'm preaching. I'm going to tell you things that sometimes it, you, it needs to be said, but you don't like it. The flesh doesn't do well sometimes. But you, you're preaching. As a leader, you have to say, this is God's will. This is what God wants us to do. So the pastor creates a vision. He, he uh, leads the church forward as to what God wants to do. And he has to learn to get people under him and follow him and trust him. All that goes together. But also he has to be a learner. The pastor has to constantly be studying and learning and growing. Uh, I was in Erie, Pennsylvania last week preaching, and I had an interview. I have a podcast, Heart for God podcast, which I started not long ago. And so I interviewed him. We had a little banter back and forth, and I respected him as a preacher, and I said, Tell us a little bit about preaching. And he said, I was trained by some men down in the, the mountains of uh, uh, North Carolina and that, that area, Tennessee. And he said, that, that's how I cut my teeth preaching. And here's what I was told. Preach from the overflow. He said, fill your mind and heart with the word of God. And when you get in the pulpit, you're going to have so much to say, it's, it's going to come out. But to do that, you have to spend a lot of time in the book. So the pastor is a learner. And not only a learner from Scripture, but a learner from people. I used to visit people that I, they didn't come to church. They probably were never going to come to church. But they knew our town. They knew how it worked. I thought, well, I'm a pastor. I've got to be very respectful of the town. And 
So I need to go talk to them and tell them, here's what we're thinking about doing. And the man said, wait a minute, hold, hold on. Sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Because when you go to the town, they are now going to feel obligated. If you don't tell them, they're not going to mind. But when you say something, now they feel, I am liable, and now they're going to tell you the, the most strict interpretation of their law. And I learned something from them. I said, this is how the town works. Another thing I found out, there are a lot of things you can't do, but certain people can do them. And a guy walks in, it's a big builder in town, and remember the, some of you remember the advertisement when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. That is one of those, he walks in like, everybody's looking at him. And they know, whatever he decides to do, that's what's going to get done. And I had to learn that's how the town works. So we started making friends with all the people in the town, get to know them, and you know that uh, and we have a meeting tomorrow night with the, the, the town council that influences us. But we know all, everybody on the town council. We know every, and the chairman comes to our church on Sunday nights. That was not the case in the beginning. But there, there is something to learn from everybody. And we can learn even from those that are not saved about our community and, and understand people better. So there is a pastor-to-people relationship, to love the people and care for people, put his heart into the ministry for people. That's what the ministry is, it's people. And then there is, thirdly, a people-to-people -people relationship. It talks about warning those that are in sin. It's not our place to go around and point out everybody's sin. But whenever somebody gets out of the will of God, our hearts should be broken. Amen. We should care about them. And there are those that we can warn. There are teenagers who have to warn. Be careful. You better make the right decision. We have to, need to comfort those that mourn. Support those that are weak. Be patient with all men. It says do good to all men. And that it sort of describes a loving relationship with other members of the church, just thinking about them. I don't, know how, I don't know anybody here is good at remembering names. You know, a lot of people tell me, oh, I can't remember their name. My wife's notorious. She said, I, you, you know what I'm talking about. I have to guess you know, who she's thinking about. She can't remember names. But I learned something several years ago. How many times do you say, and my name is, and they say their name, and immediately after they say it, you don't even know what it is. And so I've got into this habit, I'll ask people. I did this last night, yesterday, didn't I? That there's a person waiting on us, and I wasn't sure what her name was. I said, now tell me, what was your name? How do you spell that? And it stuck in my mind. That there's something about your relationship to people that you think about them, you care about them. But sometimes we're so self-absorbed, it's a formality, but we're not really concerned about them. And they tell us about their need, but we don't really hear about that need. Everybody's having a hard time, and we need to realize that. Everybody's having a hard time. You know, everybody just doesn't voice it, but everybody has their struggles and difficulties. And we understand that. We care about one another. We got a Polish guy that he and his wife got saved. They were in their 60s probably when he got saved. And his wife died, passed on, went to heaven. And he sat right up in the front. And when we have a testimony time, he would stand up and he would say something similar every time. It's, I just pray that everybody loves everybody and everybody cares about one another 
and we'd help one another, pray for one another, and he'd sit down. But he exemplified what the scripture is saying here. We have a relationship with one another. And everybody's different. And we've got to respect who they are and how God made them. Sometimes somebody gets saved, they're, they're new and they're on fire, and they say, why isn't everybody going to soul winning? Well, you know, I'm at a soul, why isn't everybody? You know, when you get your eyes on people, you're always in trouble. But why, why isn't everybody else here at a work day? It's a work day at the church, where is everybody? Where are their children? Why, why didn't they come? You know, we need people to sing, and why, there are people they could sing and they don't sing. Why, why is that? You know, if we'll allow Satan to get in, that's one way to hinder or hurt a church. We have to realize people have different skills, abilities, and they're at different levels of their Christian walk, and we learn to respect that and try to be a help. Just try to be an encouragement and to edify and build them up. That should be the role of people to people. And number four, there is a relationship that people have to God. It's our relationship to the Lord. It said, rejoice evermore. And everything, give thanks. Pray without seeing. They're just short phrases. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all or every appearance of evil. Holiness is our relationship to God. It's living in a way that's pleasing to him. So we have a, uh, an accountability to our Lord. That's our first accountability, really. Is God happy with this? Is he pleased with this? We have to, you know, some people, they have, you know, in Winnie the Pooh, there's a character called Eeyore. In Eeyore, everything bad's happening. Oh, you know, the light bulbs go out where he walks by. There's a dust following him. The worst thing's going to happen. Oh, I just, you know, and there's some people that it's their nature. And they, they're never happy. They're never rejoicing. And we have to learn to rejoice in the Lord. And be thankful unto the Lord. So it said rejoice uh, evermore. Always. Always be rejoicing. Paul said again I say rejoice. We have joy. When he wrote Philippians he talked about joy over and over again. While he was in prison. He said rejoice. In fact he was in prison. Paul and Silas say prayed at midnight sang praises to the Lord while he was in prison then. I think there are things that happen in our lives that we would probably not choose to go through. And yet, when you look back at it, you say, I wouldn't change it because God did something in my life through it. I've had numerous things, different things in my life. 2004, in fact, I think the church here prayed for me during that time. We started the Bible college, 2004, the fall. We had a lawsuit against us by a former member, the state gave us a cease and desist order that we could not have the Bible college without getting approval through the state. And I lost my voice. I had no voice. All that happened one, just all within a few months. And when I mean I lost my voice, I was not able to preach. I tried and I couldn't. And Ultimately, like four or five months later, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, through a scope, they diagnosed as uh, uh, a spasmodic dysphonia, a spastic dysphonia that is a sort of a rare thing, 
but there are people who have it, but you don't know it because they can't talk. <laughs> so there are a lot of people who have it, though it's somewhat rare. But I said, oh, well, I'm glad to figure out what's wrong now. What do you do about it? I said, well, there's nothing you do. It's incurable. Now, that's a tough thing when you, you hear something like that. I mean, it, like, you may have heard cancer. It's incurable. You know, there's something else that's incurable. They, 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 nothing you can do about it. Now, you're probably thinking, you're talking, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, God had other plans. But through that, for three years, I was not able to faithfully preach in the services. Rarely was I able to even get up and preach or talk to people. And during that time, I'd gone out to California, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, and I was seeing some alternative process to try to recover my voice. And I remember there's a right on Route 5, Interstate 5, there was a circular motel, the Holiday Inn at the time, I think. And I look out the window, and I'm looking down at the traffic and seeing everything go by. I can't really talk on the phone or call home. I just, I, you know, I'm there all alone. I'm far away, and nothing's working. And just God put it in my heart. He said, well, you can't do anything. Why don't you sit down and write? Now, for me to write, I went to Purdue University originally before I went to Bible college. I scored so high on my SAT in math, I tested out, and they gave me six credits for not even taking math. In English, I scored so low. They had a special class called Bonehead English. And there I was in a remedial English class with all the other athletes and cheerleaders taking remedial English. And I'm going to write something? That would be the last thing in the world I would do. Even preaching is the last thing I ever thought I would be doing. You know what it would take for me to write something? God would have to take my voice away. And I sat down and began writing. And it was a struggle to just come. And I wrote another book, another book. I've written a number of books. I write an article every other week for the Sword of the Lord. I write articles for the church and their papers and documents. And I write a lot of stuff. But I was writing a book in the home. I just felt like it, Dr. Rice, John R. Rice, wrote a book in the home many, many years ago. It was somewhat outdated. It was all good, but it was very outdated. And I felt like there needs to be a book in the home from a fundamental point of view. And so I spent that third year writing that book. I got to the point that I felt I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear a voice from heaven. Uh, I didn't get a direct message from God. But I just felt like I think when I finish this book, I want to get my voice back. It was just a feeling. And I shared that with the church, which... A little girl came up to me and she said, Pastor, why don't you write faster? You'll get your voice back quicker. <laughs> and in April of that year, I sent the book to the publisher. In May, my real voice started coming back. And I began preaching once a week. In six months, I was preaching every service again. 
I would not choose, if it was up to me, to go through that. But on the other hand, I would not change it because God did a number of things by going through that trial. And we go through things sometimes that God makes us better and he knocks off the rough edges and he refines us and purifies us like gold. And as we're going through it, it's hard to see it. It's hard to understand. I mean, I was the point, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I was the point, I, I don't feel right to keep drawing a salary and I can't preach. I mean, I was the point, I, maybe it's, that's it. Maybe I have to stop. But God answered a lot of prayers. And he had a purpose behind it all. So there is a relationship that we have to God. And we have to rejoice and pray, be thankful. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, All those things that are part of the Christian life, that's our relationship to God. We do it because we love him. One of the interesting things, too, is there there was a time I was gone, and I come back to church, and it just struck me. Everybody's still here. Like they weren't dependent on me. They were there because they wanted to be there. It wasn't me. They were there because God spoke to them and wanted to be there. And isn't that what it comes down to? If nobody else is here, we're, it's like, I'm here because God wants me to be here. It's our relationship to God. And then finally, there's a relationship of God to people. I, I like this point a lot. That God has a responsibility and a relationship to every believer. His relationship to unbelievers, he wants them all to be saved, and he's willing. He died, he gave the sacrifice at Calvary. All those things are prepared. That's his desire for all unbelievers. But for believers, we're called the children of God. We cry, Abba, Father, he is our Father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God does a work in our lives. The Bible says that he sanctifies us. We are uh, very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our God preserves us. He persists to work in our lives even when we go astray, even when we sin. We can walk away from God, but God does not walk away from us. I know numerous people, they gotten away from God, but God kept calling them and bringing things into their life to bring them back to himself. So we have a God who looks at us as one of his children, and he chastens those whom he loves, Hebrews 12. So God has a plan for life. He preserves us, sanctifies us, makes us more holy. You know what happens when you first get saved? Something happens in your life. It's initial sanctification. You don't do everything perfect and everything right, but you do things that are different. You may not be sinlessly perfect, but you're not what you used to be. He does something in your heart and life where you are now changed. You're different. And if you never experienced a change, then I would check my salvation. God changes somebody's heart. So it is important that we realize it is God that works in us to will and do of his good pleasure. And someday he's coming back us again if you were to go don't, don't go to Disney World but if you have been there in the past you'll notice there's different places they have stages and a stage is in a backdrop you you might sit down there and say oh there's nobody here I'm going to sit down I'm going to relax 
And while you're sitting there relaxing, somebody starts walking up on the stage and they bring PA equipment, they bring uh, backdrops, and they're, you know, they're setting all this stuff up on the stage. And so you, you, you look at that and you think, I think something's going to go on here. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but there's something's going to happen here. I, I see all the evidence of it. There is no sign that must occur before the rapture. But there are a lot of signs that point to a second coming to the earth through the, and at the end of the tribulation. And we're seeing the stage set for that, for a second coming to the earth. I mean, the stage is being set. You, you read about it every day, wherever you get your news. You know, you read about it every day. Who could have thought that any one person could control the world until COVID? Well, that would be an impossibility, but now we say it is a possible thing. A month ago, somebody came to me and they said, Preacher, they've got this new thing, face recognition. I, I said, I know, i got two apps on my phone that open up my bank account, face recognition. But that means someday they could control whether you have your bank account open or not. That's right. Whether you can buy something or not. Now, you say, well, that's really scary. No, it's not scary, it's... It's exciting because we know the time is close. He's got to be that the, the stage is being set. Something's going to happen. That's right. It's not far away. That's Something's going on here. That's right. So we can look forward to that day. Someday yeah. he's coming back That's again. Right. And then finally we see that our God is faithful. It's required in stewards that we be found faithful, but sometimes we're not. But he always is faithful. We can count on him. Faithful is he that calleth you who also do it. So God cares about us. And even through trials and tribulations, he has a plan through it all. We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So even the bad things can be turned around for good in his eyes. I can't remember who said it, but uh, I've heard it repeated by different people. But the quote is, God can't use a man greatly until he first wounds him deeply. And sometimes you have to be wounded like Jacob was, halting on his thigh. Sometimes you have to be humble a little bit before God can use us in a greater way. But God has a purpose in things that happen. You look at some of the missionaries that went overseas, you know, they lost their wife and then lost two wives and then a third wife died and they buried them in a godforsaken country and you know they faced trauma and imprisonment we have a missionary in china right now it's hair raising to listen to what's happening while he's in china i mean it's a different world it's not like here it's a different world but in spite of that they just persevere they just keep going why because god's faithful he calls us, you can just follow and he'll trust, he'll take care of you. As I said, when we came to Connecticut, we didn't have, I had about $1,800 cash, didn't have a car payment, we didn't have a place to live, we didn't know where we were going to meet, we didn't have anything printed, except I had a prayer card that I gave to some people. So we drove out and everything we owned was in a 5 by 8 U-Haul trailer with room to spare. 
We just said, this is what God wants to do. I found this out much later. My grandfather kept a $100 bill in his wallet so I'd have enough money to get back if everything failed. My mother said, I knew in my heart that he would never use that $100. I wish I had known that earlier. I'd try to say, you know, I could use that now. Just, I'm not going back home, but just I could use it. But here are some of the things that happen, and every church planner I know has experienced similar things. So no, we don't know anybody. We just, I mean, I just felt this is the town he wants to go to. That's where we're going. So I opened up a post office box. Before I got there, somebody opened it for me. And I get there, and there's all this mail. I started sending myself all my junk mail. And so I wouldn't be lonely when I got there. I could get a lot of mail. And there was a... Monday, I believe, I, a Monday or Tuesday, I went to the post office and I opened it up, box 641, still remember the box number, and I opened it up and there was an envelope, postmarked Southington, and it had no return address, and I thought, this is very odd, and we just got there, we didn't know anybody, and there's an envelope, and I'm kind of looking around like, did somebody just put that in there? Where did this come from? I opened it up, and it was a $100 bill. This is 1975. For some of our young people here, in 1975, $100 would be like 1000 today. It was a lot of money. I thought, that's something. I mean, the next week on the same day of the week, I'm going to the post office, one of my favorite places to go. <laughs> go to the post office. I open up the post office box, and there's another envelope, postmark Southington, and no return address on it, no name. And another $100 bill. But that's incredible. I have no idea. Where did that come from? Well, it came from God. I know that. But some person put, it, put that in the mail. I have no idea where it could have come from. For 10 weeks, the $100 bill was in the mail. Now, to be honest with you, I, I was happy. I was rejoicing. But I was just thinking about, I, we've got to reach people. We've got to get people saved. We've got to get the church started. And it just didn't occur to me that it took money to live. I just, and in spite of our youth, God said, I'm going to take care of you. And God fed us. God met our needs. And I didn't have support, didn't have a job. We just went. Said, God's going to take care of us. And everybody doesn't do it that way. A lot of people did back then. But God took care of us. Why do I bring it up? Because God's faithful to everyone. Whatever your needs are, God is faithful. You may not understand it, but God is faithful. He knows what you need, how he can use you, how you fit into God's plan. Now, for the church going forward, it's important to have all the structure in place. The foundation has to be right. Not that it's not there, but it's important to realize if you don't build on the right foundation, then it can crumble. It's important to build a structure on the right foundation. So as you go forward, all these relationships mean that we edify one another. It means we have a vision. It means we reach the lost. And they come into a place where they realize God's here. God's doing something. And there is something about it that some places you go into. When I was unsaved, I went to a church my mother started going to. And do you remember Brother Strader, Owen Strader? Did you meet him before? So he was in Linton at Olive Branch. You, yeah, you knew him. He introduced me to you, I think. So he... He's preaching, and 
he was an awful preacher, but man, he had the biggest heart in the world. He just loved people, and he, loved, and he challenged people to get right with God. And I remember even the first time I went there, he gave invitation, and I felt like, I, feel, I never felt something like this before. What's going on here? Right? I mean, I felt like it was all directed to me. But it was God working. But that preacher went, he, he would get, in the morning, early morning, he would call on his hands and knees through that church praying for God to be present. And here I am lost. I walk into that church. I knew something was different. This wasn't like any church I'd been in before. God was there. And when the foundation is right, God's there in the midst. People, they, they know it. Even the unsaved people, they know this is different because they can sense the presence of God. So as this church goes forward, and, and you're going forward, that uh, God has a plan, but it has to have the right foundation. Love one another. The pastor's role of the people, the people's role of the pastor, the people's role to one another, and the people's role to God, and God's role to us. When all those things are lined up, it is a powerful organization. It is a powerful entity. It is the church of God going forward to do his work. Let's bow for prayer. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, my, my hope and my prayer is that you make that commitment, which you may have already made, Maybe you need to renew that commitment. You're on board. You're 100% involved in this church to say, I'm committed. I want to serve God. I want to see people saved. I want the church to go forward and bring honor to God. I want it to be healthy. I want to do my part to honor our pastor. I want to honor the other believers that are here. And above all, I want to honor God. That should be our heart's desire. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love us, you care about us, and, oh, God, do a work in our midst, in our heart, that we'd be surrendered and yielded to thee, and may you be exalted in the days and weeks and even years.